Well, hi, everybody. My name is Chip Jacobs, and I'm a Los Angeles area author and journalist. And I'm delighted today to be talking to um, the author of a really fabulous book. Um, I don't use that word lightly. And um, that is Dr. Stephen Stein. I'm calling him Steve because he's being nice to me today, but uh, you should call him Dr. Stein. He is, Dr. Stein is a retired orthopedic surgeon who lives today in rural Indiana with his wife and two children. Uh, he has had a 30-year practice in Phoenix, Arizona, before moving to Batesville, uh, Indiana, in the Midwest, to focus on his writing. Uh, he and his family have traveled throughout Europe, which really does show, I must say, in the book. Um, and, and he has a fantastic uh, foundation for um, his novel, which is entitled The Oath. Um, his passions include scuba diving, flying, and exploring new environments. He uh, currently is president of the Batesville School Board, which is not probably a very <laughs> part-time job. It's, I'm sure it's very consuming. And is also the director of the Ivy Tech Community College Foundation. Um, the Oath is his first novel, and I just must say, as somebody who's been writing as a reporter in the last few years as a full-time journalist, I found that last line almost unbelievable. Um, Steve, um, you know, it's great to have you on. I can't believe this is your first novel. Um, you know, wow. when, I first, when I first did a little digging around on Google, I thought, you know, it's going to be a, uh, a sincere, earnest effort by, you know, uh, a relative amateur. And then within like 15, 20 pages, I could realize, oh my gosh, my you know, that was a total misconception, and I started looking forward to time in my day when I could read your book. So I congratulate you on a really astonishing first first book, let well, alone historical novel. So um, anyway, uh, great to have you with me. Well, Chip, thank you so much for those kind, kind words. I'm, uh, I want to start off and say, you know, I'm originally an L.A. resident, and... Uh, Interestingly enough, the time of the book that I was reading of yours, as strange as it seems, occurred while I was living in Los Angeles. And reading your book, which is so well written and is so informative, was was fantastic because I recognized the sights and some of the restaurants and and the energies of the day that were occurring in Los Angeles at that time. So, anyway, it was it was very very it was. It was like going back to my home when I was reading your book. Now, although I wasn't obviously as it wasn't as complex as the life of uh, Gordon uh, Gordon was, but it was a fantastic book, and I thank well, you for let me reading it. Well, my, my um, pleasure. Um, I, I'm just wondering, as an aside, you know, my uncle was um, fortunate to be saved by many doctors during his life. One of them was a guy named Joe Risser. Um, who was a very well-known orthopedic doctor? Did you ever come across him in your Joe, time, Joe Risser, R-I-S-S-E-R? I know the name, but I didn't go, come across him. Yeah, uh, I am, uh, I've known the name. He was was he at uh, uh, Cedars? Cedars? No, he Weather was out, he, he was sort of out in the Pasadena area, but. Uh, um, yeah, uh, he was instrumental in my uncle's life. But um, I, I should—I—I I, I forgot to mention uh, that you are a, in a way, kind of an Angelino. You went to UCLA. You went to uh, UCLA as your undergrad. Is that correct? Or That's grad? Correct. Or, yeah. That's correct. 
So I'll, I'll even gladly do this podcast with you, Trojan, that I am, uh, because your book is so darn good. So let, I, I do want to ask you something. Just, just the first thing I wanted to, wanted to go into is, I mean, what was your base inspiration? When I read this book, um, the two... The two works of art that came into my mind was All the Light You Can See, which is a sensational Pulitzer-winning historical fiction excellent. about World yeah, War II. And the other one was the, was the amazing, underrated Dustin Hoffman movie, Marathon Man. What was your inspiration for writing this tale? Well, it was, it was different than what we normally would come across. I had served on the Arizona Board of Medical Examiners. We're the disciplinary board for doctors. And we had a physician come before us who had lost two, uh, he had two people die in a short period of time. He was an anesthesiologist from Yuma. So he showed up at the board and he's a well-dressed, white-haired man with this English-German accent, right out of the marathon man, actually, that same look as as the German had been. I opened up his file, and he has on his diploma a big black swastika stamped on it. Oh, my even, And I'll tell you, but I, my hair stood up on my neck. But, you know, reading it further, you look further, and he graduated from medical school, the University of Kiel, Kiel, Germany, on May 5th, 1945, which I saw the new dates, and which was like three days before the surrender before Germany surrendered to the Allies during World War II. And when you read further, Kiel was a repair base for the U-boats and was repeatedly bombed. It was an easy, easy bombing run from Great Britain. And it was bombed repeatedly, and about 70% of the city was destroyed. So I said to myself, you know, this, this guy could not have graduated on that day. Maybe he's one of these Nazi doctors. So we had a reporter... Uh, that would come to our meetings, you know, the report for the, for the Arizona Republic. And I asked him, I said, are you interested in the study? You know, look, I think there's a story behind this. And he comes back the next day and Brad tells me, he says, you know, my editor says, that's how we get sued. So, that's how we, uh-huh. and so I, you know, I, I was in practice. I didn't have much time. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I said, you know, I'm going to research this and make up a story. Because I didn't have time to research. Do you so think I, that he? Do you think that he was? Do you, Do you think he forged his document to conceal well, a deeper involvement with the Nazis? That's what I thought. And so, more interesting as we go along with the story. About two years later, I'm flying from Phoenix to LA for some reason or meeting. I'm sitting next to a guy who's an attorney. And I was telling him about, you know, this idea I have to write a book. And he says, you know, I have a client in Arizona, and you ought to meet him. He's a German doctor. It was the same man. Wow. So I went and I interviewed him twice. I got his story, as he said it. And, uh, you know, one of the more interesting things he said to me, he says, you know, everybody said we should have known about what was happening during the war at Auschwitz and the concentration camps. He says, but we didn't know, and there's a, there's a book written about it. And, and, and he said, I, I don't believe that. That, that. that isn't true. So I had read the book. In fact, I'm looking for the title right now in my office. I had read the book, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll send you a copy of the book. 
and I sent him a copy of the book. I interviewed him twice, and his story was fairly, fairly correct, I guess. His medical school was bombed during the war after two years, and so he went back home, and the uh, Army found out and drafted him during the war, sent him off. He was in France, and then he was actually on the shores of the Baltic, when uh, uh, another physician came up to him and said, you know, you ought to go and take your examinations. You know, you, you probably could pass them. So he went and uh, he took his examinations, and I asked him, I said, well, how could you graduate from Kiel when they were bombing that record? He said, well, we held the ceremonies in a small town outside of Kiel. That was his story. Mm-hmm. So, uh, interesting enough, about five years ago, before I had the book finished, I got a call from that attorney. He says, hey, have you written that book yet? And I said, uh, no, no. And so I keep looking to see if this man is still alive, and he is. And I have not sent him a copy of the book. But anyway, that's the inspiration. That's how it all started. And that got me going on doing the research back. And I mean, this, we go back to 1989 when I first started. And then uh, during the trips, the research, and that's how it came about. So, um, but you got you got the you got the germ of the idea though in 1989. Correct. Correct. Wow. Um, so, in a way, this doctor that you met before—I mean, he, he's, it seems like he was the inspiration for one of your two main characters. He—he he, he was kind of the Hans character, who he's Hans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, um, you know, this happens in war stories that I've read before, where people use the chaos um, and fear of war to um, create new identities for themselves, and that's what he does. Um, that's but Hans. Right. You know, one of the things about Hans, though, is, and I don't like book uh, reviews and podcasts, et cetera, that just give the, that are spoiler alerts and and retell the book. That's what that's for the authors, that's for the readers to go and explore and and put their imagination to work. But I mean, no, I do want to ask you though, Hans. You know, Hans did practice as a doctor. He seemed to have some allegiance to the Hippocratic Oath and to taking care of people, though inside you know, he wasn't necessarily the cleanest of souls. I mean, did you intentionally, you know, work to show him being a practicing doctor outside of, you know, war experiments? Well, you know, I I struggled with that at first because the the first entry in the book were bringing him, basically bringing him into uh, the SS as a physician and ultimately to Auschwitz. And as I... uh, I think in the book, hopefully, people can see that he's still trying to do his research all the way through as he's practicing in California, and he's doing research there. And, uh, right. Uh, and so I don't think they got, ever got away from it, but I think you can't take that portion, all of that, of a physician, that altruism, you can't take that fully out of them because you're in training and it's pushed on you and and trained in you so much that you're there to serve people. But I'm quite sure there are physicians, as we see both in the press today as well as in the past, who will forget the Hippocratic Oath and do those things that they want to do, either as um, Michelle Katz, the Jewish physician, who, who tries to save the life of his family by altering his uh, oath uh, to the Hippocratic Oath. So That's I think, right. You know, yeah, uh, 
I was just going to I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in a, you know, Hans never really wrestled with the Hans, Hans never really wrestled with the moral dilemma the way that Michelle did. And um, okay. you know, uh um of the two, Michelle was the tormented Michelle was the tormented one throughout the years. Um and um uh, yeah. you know, uh, um, Hans is sort of that old moral story about, you know, ba- bad guys who don't see themselves as bad. You know, they see themselves as the heroes of their own story. So, I mean, I think you or really, yeah, yeah, I think you rendered that law. well. They're, yeah, they're above, the they're above everything else. Yeah, They're right. above everything else because they're so, so perfect, so Aryan perfect as he thought he was. But I wonder, um, do, you, do you think Hans would have been, um, you know, a dark, malevolent, malicious person if he had, um, you know, there had been no war? No, I, I think he would have been a businessman, and uh, he would have worked. His uh, his father had been a, a shipbuilder in the Baltic coast, and I think that's right. what he ultimately would have done. Of course, he would have always... Uh, felt that the Jews were responsible for what happened in Germany, and he would have still had that strong uh, fascist feeling in support of Hitler, but had he not been in the war, he would have worked hard as a businessman. And, you know, the other thing that was brought out, and it's not brought out as strongly in the book as I would have liked, but the Operation Paperclip is a real thing. This is the operation by which we brought over 1,500 physicians from Germany after World War II to our country to help in the space program like Werner von Braun. We brought over we brought over a physician named Hubertus Struhold who became the father of aviation medicine. There was a ward named after him and when they looked back on his history they found he was doing these actually he was doing these cold immersion studies that I talk about in the book at Dachau. And so as soon as they found out about that, even after this man had died, they pulled the award. So we had physicians that were brought into this country from Germany after the war who had done bad things. That's absolutely we, true. We were, um, yeah, and, you know, it was just, when World War II was coming to an end, it was, uh, you know, uh, a competition between the Soviets and the Americans who were going to get, the, you know, the geniuses developing V2 rockets and, you know, advanced medicine and other tech, you know, it was, forget them, you know, forget the fact that they were complicit in war crimes. We wanted them on our side, right? I mean, actually out in Southern California, Werner von Braun, I mean, not only rockets, but, you know, he was in a way the father of the ICBM. And um, That's correct. So, you know, nobody's hands are clean. Um, let me ask you, I mean, do you, did you have anybody in your family die in the Holocaust? You know, my family came over from Western Russia, Latvia, Polish, Poland area, it's called the right. Pale, about 1890s on both sides. So uh, probably faraway cousins who were left behind. I right. don't know their names, but passed away uh, during the war, either at the concentration camps or even in the Ukraine, where they were killed by the Ukrainian right-wingers. But I don't have anybody specifically that I, see. I know as a relative. Um, well, let me ask you just lob a few more questions at you. Um, um, in, in terms of Michelle, I mean, he um, has got a good heart. He's, and I don't want to get too much into detail. I want people to read it. But he's separated from his family. He's already feeling guilty and anxious and terrified about that. 
you know, he has to be, I mean, he's kind of forced to either pick the gas chamber or work side by side in these experimentations. I mean, did right. he, he didn't he didn't really have another choice, did he? I mean, it was either live and try to figure a way out and grapple with the guilt later or sayonara. Yeah, my idea was that he was trying to save the life of his family by not working in the experimental, by not by working with the Nazis. Because right. had he not chosen to do that, he could have been alive maybe, and maybe he would have uh, worked uh, in the camps taking care of the prisoners with what little medicines they had. But he thought he made that extra step. He made it, he sort of talked to Mangala about his family, that they would protect his family if he went ahead and uh, worked with the Nazis. Um, so, and uh, without telling the public what happened, I think this was his intent anyway. Yes. Um, you know, you have a character in the book named Martin, and it, it, yes. it was almost like Martin was split off from Michelle. Like, Martin is like the id, you know, of, of Michelle, like the, the, the primitive, barbaric, you know, I want vengeance. But, you know, um, you know, Michelle seems to make like a conscious decision that he is not going to participate in, in more overt acts of revenge and, and retaliation. And, uh, man, he suffers through the ages. And um, I think that's probably very realistic in terms of survivor's and guilt. Yeah, and that's true. And, then there, and there are the Martins in this world. There are the people who want to respond back. And uh, there's a little bit of Martin in every one of us. You know, when I'm reading the history of what happened during the war and what happened at Auschwitz and how, how right. the people were murdered and killed, you say, damn it, I wish I, I, wish I could have done something. And I think Martin represents the conscience of a lot of people, not whether it's right or wrong, but it's the response of a lot of people. And his joining of the, uh, the Jewish Brigade, which I think is, was a very small part of the war, but was a big part of uh, the Israeli uh, military in 1948 when they became a state. They, they right. depended upon the leaders from the Jewish Brigade to help them. There's a, there's a story there. And I think there is a, yeah. There, I, I hope your book gets some some film consideration because it, it, you know uh, it's taut and um, it's suspenseful. Um, kind of the last couple of questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, um, you know, there, there is a female character in the book, uh, um, Tamara, and um, yes, you, you know, in a, uh, um, she she's sort of in a way. You know, I'm just gonna in a way she's kind of the Anne Frank like, you know, in terms of her views of things and where she is during World War II. And um, she, she's, um, she's, she's a heroine of sorts herself, and she, thank God for her art. I mean, when I was reading, I mean, she's an artist, and I, I kept thinking to myself, her art is what saved her, you know, kept her sanity alive. Uh, am I wrong in thinking and, that? And, and it was her art, yeah, that saved her. And it was her art that helped bring Michelle out of his right out of his depression, and because they compared her art with his written notes. And in fact, every time I go and reread that chapter that I wrote about when she's showing the pictures and he's reading, 
and uh, the, some of the details, the pictures of his family and the train come out. I even, <laughs> it's strange, but I even get cheerful when I read some of the stuff I wrote about because I think it's a pretty sensitive issue. And, and war uh, forces terrible choices on us all, and she has to make a terrible <laughs> choice, too. I mean, she, yeah. in a way, she, you know, uh, she could have spared Michelle some, you know, some grief, although maybe, you know, you know, what one person's, you know, it, it was, it was an omission of kindness, but it was also a terrible choice that she had to make. So, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I just think it's an incredible book. And I do want to ask you a couple of oh. things, you know, what was, what did you struggle as a first time? I mean, had you written creatively, creatively before? No, you know, the, um, I'd written some scientific articles, which are very different. And right. I had noticed that in my office practice with my other, uh, other members in my office, that they would be the ones to come to me to write a letter. Because words seemed to flow out of, you know, that I could write. If, you know, if we had a problem with the hospital or an insurance company or whatever, I could write a letter. And I think it was during that practice of how to, how to write to other people that I, Developed some writing skills. I have to say, you know, I was I was giving a discussion to the uh, students in the English classes here at the high school in Batesville, and one of the teachers said to me, he says, "Please bring up the fact that when you were in English in high school, that you didn't do well, so I can give these kids hope." And I said, "Okay," and I, you know, because I really never did well writing before I got into college, so mm-hmm. it's something that occurred over time. Occurred over time. Well, what did you when you in the course of writing this book? What did you struggle with the most? Was it, you know, was it uh, uh, the prose? Was it story construction? Was it pace? I mean, what did you know? I think a lot of first-time authors and and young writers, you know, would love to hear what. How did you put this together? Because you know, it is it is a very intricate book. Yeah, I I took a couple of courses, and I went an online course of writing, and I did a writer's residence with a, a writer in, uh, he was just outside of San out of Santa Barbara, Lombok. Okay. I, I spent a week there, and I went over those things in my mind, the pace of the book. In fact, I moved chapters around because you want to maintain a certain level of excitement throughout the book because if it drops down, you'll lose the reader. Um I had problems. Um, so there would be days I could sit down and I would write stuff, and then I would go back the next day and look at it and say, "Did I really write that junk?" You know, there are days right. that you can write, and there are days that it flows off. You know, and I, I guess uh, you just have to keep trying it. And then I didn't write this from one end to the other. I had an idea, and I would get an idea in a chapter, and I would write a chapter, and then did you'd you have know- to go back and make. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Um, Please continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. And then you'd have to go back and make sure the dates and the names you used in previous chapters were consistent with the names of the children earlier on. But that that wasn't a big deal. Um, Last question question for you at this point. You know, I'm sure you're doing other interviews, but, you know, as a journalist, I often found the best story was the one that I never sought, I never set out to write. Did did you have an ending in mind? I mean, the ending is makes you cringe. <laughs> I mean, and gives you uh, gives readers a satisfying denouement. But I mean, did you have did you have an ending in mind when you set out, or did you let the characters, you know, write the ending? 
I think I let the characters write the ending. I let it develop. You know, I did okay. not, I didn't have the ending in mind. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thought how you do that. Um, yeah, well, that's part of the creative process. So, if you, why don't you ask me? You know, do you have any questions about Strange as a Teens? I mean, I, I want to, I want to keep this focused on the oath. But well, um, well, no, I, I have questions about you because you know somewhat about the book, but about your choice of things that you've written about. It's a varied choice, you know, from the history of a of a relative, uh, which is a fantastic story. I had never not heard about it. To things about the smog in LA and. Uh, uh, the Vicodin fees. Uh, I mean, you, you've chosen a wide variety of things to write about. How do you? Is this just kind of came out of your journalism, or how did you come across that? I'm I'm, I'm a naturally curious person. Um, I, you know, when I was trying to think about what I want to do for a living, writing always came easy for me. English came easy. Not chemistry and physics, those types of things, but I could just close my eyes and I could do okay, you know, in writing and telling a story and describing scenes, etc. Um, you know, um, the, the, my biggest quote, biggest book has been the book on Los Angeles smog, and it's not a technical book; it's it's a social, it's social history. I love sociology. I love. Um, you know, analyzing how a group of people react to a crisis because I think it reveals who they are and what they can be. Um, you know, I wrote a follow-up to Smogtown called People's Republic of Chemicals, and, you know, that was supposed to be about China's environmental apocalypse. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, in China, they right, lose right. four or 5,000 people a day, a day, you know, to a preventable you know, affliction on a preventable, um, you know, uh, product of, of modern life that Shakespeare was writing about. So it tells you about the state of the world. Um, and that book kind of somewhat like yours, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be a book about global economics, but that's what it turned into. It turned into a diatribe against free trade and the idea that we can export pollution from one country to a poor country in return for their jobs. So, you know, um, I, I'm just a curious person. I, um, you know, the book about my uncle I had put out earlier, but I never felt right about it. And I, I guess the compulsive gene in me wouldn't let it rest until I wrote the book the right way. I, I fixed previous errors. And, I, you know, it, I, it turned out to be the book that I always dreamed it could be. And, you know, my, this is a book about my uncle who died when I was 14. And I really just... Um, you know, uh, detested the person. You know, he he could be very grumpy and brusque, and I only discovered the miracle that he was after he died. And my mom, you know, began somewhat henpecking and and coaxing me to write write his biography. So, you know, I, I've been lucky. I just, uh, in a way, I just sort of go where I think the story is. You know, there's a story that's out today about the heroin epidemic. And there was a book written actually by an LA journalist. Uh, I know him, Sam Cujones. Yeah. A great book, great book. And I read that. In fact, we're even instituting drug testing at our high school. But there was a story that I, back, I used to be the director of the Arizona State Compensation Fund medical director. And we had people that were distributing large quantities of Oxycontin about year Mm -hmm. 2000 to the point that I called in the the, uh, head of the company that makes. that makes Oxycontin, it was the only drug they made, and I asked them, I said, well, what's the, what's the top dose that you can give? And the person says, there is no top dose. And this company settled with the government 
for $700 million, I think, in 2007. But that's not the story, because they should have been, people should have been put in jail. The way they were marketing the drug, they were hiring doctors and nurses to go across the country and tell them doctors aren't giving enough pain medications. You know, you, and, and they convince people to the point that in the California, to be licensed in California, you have to take a special course in pain management, really based on what what this company was marketing in terms of trying to get their drug out there. It was the only long-acting uh, 12-hour uh, uh, opioid, OxyContin. And that has led to this present heroin epidemic. I know. It's... it's um... uh, yeah, and it, it's it's disturbing. I, I am not a big fan of big pharmaceuticals. Um, I'm not a fan of them advertising on TV, just like lawyers. I think it's just fueling unnecessary addiction and litigation. I agree, I litigation. agree with you so much. I agree but, with um, you so much. Uh, one nice thing about writing, one th- nice thing about my uncle, because he could not feel anything below his shoulders, you know, he didn't need to get a lot of pain medication. He, um, people that were around him used to marvel at his ability to diagnose problems with himself based on his headaches. And he could, he, he, you know, the, his, his headaches were like um, the messenger service to something else wrong with him. And if he got like a headache in the front, in his, in his forehead, he knew, for example, it was his stomach that was a problem. If he got a deeper back of the head headache, he maybe knew that he had a problem with, a, uh, with his bladder or bowel. You know. Yeah, so, um, it, it, you know, it is sort of like the blind developing, extra, you know, heightened senses. My uncle could, right. I, don't, I don't think he was taking, you know, Percocet or other things like that. You know, he, uh, uh, my uncle tended to give people headaches, not really get them as much or, to, you know. Um, <laughs> How did you get all the detail? How did you get all that? It was fantastic, the detail, some of the day-to-day detail. I, I noticed you made a comment in the earlier part of the book that some of this may have been fictional, but... Um, I, you know, I did, uh, I could never have written a book if I, I, as an author if I would not been a journalist first because I used all the tools yeah. of digging, finding dates, networking, paying attention to asterisks and footnotes. You know, when I would meet one person, I would ask them, can you give me five other people that know something about this? And I had a lot of doors shut on my face, people that wouldn't talk. Um, one of the critical challenges for me because most of my uncle's records, di- you know, not diaries, but his phone book, et cetera, business documents, they were thrown away. So the, the Mount um, Olympus that I had to climb initially was finding the date of this terrible accident. And once I found the date using microfiche at the Sierra Madre Public Library, everything else flowed from there. But, you know, it was not easy. And uh, my eyes were blurry from going through months and months of microfiche. My mom imagine. knew the my mom knew the general date. Um, so, yeah, you know, I did that, and I, I worked on the book. I crafted. I went back. I obsessed. You know, I, I wanted to make the book about Hollywood. I wanted to make, make Hollywood the backdrop and a character, but I wanted this to be about one person's will and also a, a story about, you know, um, kind of collective love because without collective love, my uncle never would have got out of Sierra Madre. I doubt he would have ever gotten out of traction at County General Hospital. I mean, did you? Yeah, well, without, were you without surprised? His grandmother, you, yeah, yeah. My, without his mother's love, it would have been. I mean, I mean, was that, were you surprised at all by the way they dealt with his paralysis in 1940? Is that consistent with what you knew about that? 
Well, you know, I, they kept them down a lot longer than I had expected, and uh, and I, I, I didn't. And and it's true that they, quadriplegics did not live very long back then. They usually developed some form of pulmonary disease and right. went and died, or a urinary tract infection and died. But I and I was surprised, and I think the skill is in uh, his mother. His mother saved his life. And, uh, Absolutely, and she, she sort of for, she forsook years off her own so her son would outlive her. You know, my my uncle was actually in a body cast for like three or four years. I mean, and that was too just long. In, yeah. it, it it just inconceivable that somebody could could survive that and not. You know, I mean, a, a lot of people back in the day when they were diagnosed as a quadriplegic, they actually asked their friends to put a pillow over their head and end their suffering and let send them off to their next dimension. My uncle, you know, I'm, I'm sure he contemplated that, but he, I, I don't know, I think he, early on he, he relied on his faith and the old part of him that was mischievous and adventurous, that's what saved him as well, of course, as his mother. Right? I, think he, I think he was a truly energetic person. He would have been energetic whether he broke his neck or not. He would have been successful probably more, you know, he would have been successful had he not been sick or injured. He, he just had that drive in him. He did, and he wasn't, you know, um, because he was a ninth grade dropout, he wasn't very sophisticated. And um, I, I often think that he blew a lot of bigger business deals because he was just relying on the gut. And he didn't, you know, because he never took finance accounting. He didn't have an appreciation for, you know, the business protocol. Um, wow. Let's see. So, um, look, um, Dr. Steve, are you working on any other book? Are, what are you well, telling tell us more about what you're doing? Well, the follow-up I have is on is on the character Martin, and I'm I'm writing about the uh, Jewish Brigade, and I've already started some chapters on it. And my next job is to go to to visit Europe and visit Italy and some of the places where it started off, and then I want to bring because in the book, if you notice, Martin, there's a period of maybe 15, 20 years in there in which he is absent, and I think I can fill that void in with a new book. I, um, I I can't wait to read it. I mean, that's, you know, um, it's been, I think, like 20, 30 years since there's been, um, you know, an exciting book about what happened after World War II. I mean, obviously you saw the boys from Brazil, right? Yes, yes. Um, but I the did. Jewish, I think it's such an unexplored subject. Uh, you know, I still go back and look at World War II. Read, I'm, I'm real. I'm a student of history, and I just think God, a lot of it has never come out very well, or it was done in a way, you know, that the, uh, the today's generations are missing. So, uh, God, I can't wait. Yeah. Um, what can, do you have? Um, so, where can people buy your book? The, the book is available uh, online, uh, both. Uh, at Amazon, you can buy it uh, in the soft cover version, or you can buy it uh, uh, in the Kindle edition. Um, Nook sells it, so it's it's available that way, and bookstores can order, order it. It's, Do you uh, when when, when the what's, uh, yeah? Well, I really I hope people will check it out. Uh, I, I I would I, not be I would not be effusive about it if I didn't mean it. Also, the cover of the book to me was a surprise after I finished the book because. It, it real the the cover of the book is it could also be called you know what Michelle lost you know it's not that, it, yeah. it don't you think I mean it's it, it yeah, almost brings that's it. an interesting story 
a neighbor, my son, who's now about 23, we have a neighbor boy who's an artistic, very good artistic, he's a singer as well, out here in Batesville. I was talking to him about three years, three, four years ago about the book, and I said, how would you like to try to write a picture, draw, draw a picture? I told him what I wanted, and he drew this picture for me. So it's uh, homegrown. But, but I mean, your choice of the art is, is a commentary to me on the sacrifice of, of the protagonist. It is, it is. It is. Yes. And it is. And, and you look at that, and you look at that, and you say, is that what he might lose? You know, and... and uh, you know, uh, to, last question for you now. I, I mean, do you, do, you, do you see parallels at all? And, and I think we use the Nazi metaphor way too much. But do you see any parallels between, you know, what's going on in terms of the presidential election and Donald Trump, ISIS, and, and, and Germany? Do you see that, do you see nationalistic, you know, flickers, you know, starting to be relit? I, I, I think there have been nationalistic flickers written uh, lit in several of the countries in, in Europe. And I think in this country, whether you call it populism or nationalism, you can get somebody to light that fire. <clears throat> As I was reading the book, and you go back and look at what's happened in other countries in which certain peoples were destroyed or killed, I, I come up with an idea that perhaps there's 30% of a population 30% of a population that has not been not well-traveled, has not met a lot of people who are probably less educated, who can be swayed by a populist so that they can blame their lack of success in life on somebody, some other group. Right. And I think that's very, that's very true. And <clears throat> I think that's the fearful thing that's happening. When you see political people Training on the on the on these feelings of people, that, yes. and, and, and the Muslim issue and stuff like that. And yeah, it is. It, it's reminiscent. Yeah. And it's demagoguery and pandering. Well, you know, I think the world needs more Michelles and less Hanses. I'll just say that. <laughs> So, um, uh, Steve, it's been great talking to you. Um, anybody listening to this podcast, please go check out his book, The Oath. It's available uh, at Amazon, Kindle, other online retailers. It, it's really, you will be, you'll, you'll get an excellent viewpoint about history and the choices we make and, and unfair choices that are thrust upon us. So it's been a pleasure talking to you, Steve, um, and I hope to well, connect with you down I the future. Uh, Chip, we hope to see you someday in L.A. when I get there, okay? Please do. All right, all right. God bless everybody, and uh, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.